It's another blessed opportunity we've each been given to gather on this Lord's Day morning. It's always a sweet thing to begin our week in the way that the Word of God would encourage so that we can be those whose faith is strengthened and we have the privilege of offering to God our heartfelt worship, our adoration, the obeisance that we each feel relative to what He has done for us. On that moment when Jesus died on the cross and made it possible for you and I to be saved from sin, what a tremendous thing that God did on our behalf. For the next few moments this morning, could I invite you to make application using a passage that was just read in our hearing a moment ago, namely 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 9. As I begin that particular lesson, by way of these moments of introduction, I would in many ways just ask each of us a question. For example, isn't it true that the Word of God makes many references to various and sundry kinds of clothing? For example, Joseph, of course, due to the provision of his daddy, he wore a coat of many colors. And that was basically a tunic, a shirt-like garment. But you and I know that John the Baptist, for example, as you can see on that slide, he wore a particular raiment made of camel's hair with a leather girdle. That's only two of a large, large sample of various kinds of clothing in the Bible. Don't you find it a bit interesting then when Paul makes reference in 1 Timothy 2.9? It says, modest apparel. What is that? What would constitute modest apparel? What would not constitute that? May I point out that this certainly is a matter of intrigue and interest and also a great practical import as well. Why don't we step through that then in the following way. This next slide calls upon us to reflect upon the city, the location, the environment in which this kind of instruction was given. You and I will not only use that to make some applications, but it will help us, I think, make application directly to our day. Timothy was stationed in the city of Ephesus. In other words, the man to whom Paul wrote that instruction was preaching at a congregation in the city of Ephesus. You may ask, what kind of place was this? Ephesus was the capital city of that province called Asia Minor. Now, in that place of Asia, you and I remember Ephesus occupied a rather critical place. It was a large city, at least 300,000. And being noted in that way, could I point out the following? Ephesus was known for its harbor. Ships would come in there. In fact, there were large warehouses located right on the coast where those ships would unload the particulars of their, of their cargo. And it was from there that the major roadway system would carry those goods to various places in that area. I say all that to say this. Ephesus was known as the place of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Diana was there. I would offer you the following thought. There was lots of opportunity. Imagine the congregation of the Lord's people positioned in Ephesus. The kind of uniqueness and the peculiarity that was them. The kind of message that they sent. Paul stayed there three years and preached. You and I immediately know how unusual that was. Typically, Paul would stay a little time and then move on to another place. He saw the opportunity of the Lord's work in this place to be extreme. And he stayed there again for three years. 
it is also intriguing that this is the very place to where John penned apparently all five books of the New Testament that he wrote. I say all that to say, Paul encouraged the ladies of Ephesus as well as all of the individuals there to be mindful of modest apparel. What did he mean by this? This next slide invites you to think more carefully about the actual phrase that occurs. Now, at the top of this slide, I've tried to put the English letters for each one of the Greek ones in place. Now, that by itself probably isn't that meaningful to you and me directly because we don't speak Greek. But I have below it given you the translation of each of the seven words. So as you look at the seven there at the top, below it, look at the translation. That first word we encounter in this 1 Timothy 2.9 passage, it says, women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That translation takes us to, in Greek, the first word is clothing. Attire, raiment, what you wear. So Paul is in essence making comment about things as practical as what I choose or choose not to wear. That next word means respectable. It means appropriate. That which is fitting. That which is suitable. That next word is just a preposition. It means with, along with. That fourth word, modesty. Now you'll notice I've put numbers out beside three of them. The number one, the number two, the number three. I did that for reference purposes here in just a moment. That fifth word is just the word and. But notice the sixth word. Self-control. Good judgment. Apt behavior. And finally, the seventh word is the verb. Now, often in Greek, the verb comes at the end. We in English are more accustomed to the verb coming much nearer the subject. But that wasn't true in Greek. Often the verb could be way off at the end. And so it is here. And that word means to attire or adorn oneself. So now let's go to the bottom of that slide. Let's take out three of those, the ones that are seemingly the most bearing on our subject. And let's look at them. That word that's number one. Could I also point out, by the fact that there's clothing that Paul asserts needs to be respectable and appropriate, there's clothing that would be inappropriate. There's clothing that would not be respectable. There's clothing that would not be suitable. Word number two. The word that's translated modesty in the original language carries the sense of shame. In other words, one ought to feel ashamed wearing this. One ought to feel a sense of shame with others viewing what I'm now wearing if I'm dressed this way. I would point out that that sense of shame ought to prevent one from wearing this. Since I wouldn't want to feel this way, that ought to prevent me or encourage me not to be dressed this way. Now that sense of shame is again very strong in the original language. Thirdly, notice that this word self-control and this idea of sound judgment, it has to do with a soundness of mind. A choice on one's part to behave or conduct with regard to clothing in such a way, I will not dress in this way. Sound mind, good judgment. 
Could I point out there is some clothing in the ancient time in Ephesus that did not meet this kind of description. It was clothing that wouldn't be appropriate, wouldn't be fitting. Those ladies, those persons of that congregation in Ephesus then ought to choose not to have worn or dressed like this. By the same token, you and I realize the inspired character of the Bible's injunction, meaning there's clothing today that wouldn't be appropriate. There's clothing today that wouldn't be fitting. It wouldn't be modest. It would not be respectable in the sight of God. The world might very well look upon it with a great deal of approval. But that does not mean that God does. As you and I reflect upon this even more thoroughly, the next slide will lead us to make this rather strong conclusion. Since the Word of God has chosen, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include statements and meanings like this. It certainly does mean that it does matter what a person chooses to wear. It, in fact, says a great deal about that person's mental connection to God. Let's develop that in, in the following way. Wouldn't you agree with me? There are certainly some parts of the human body which are fine to be seen, and they are perfectly viewable in a public way, like your face, your hands, your feet. Well, those things we appreciate do not encourage lust. They do not encourage inappropriate thinking on the part of others, at least in a passionate kind of way. But of course, therein lies the issue. There are certain parts of the human body which obviously are what we call private. Those are not to be viewed publicly. They are not openly for that purpose because they do encourage thoughts that are impure. They do encourage thoughts which could be lustful. They do encourage thoughts which are inappropriate and unholy. And for that reason, those parts of the body need to be covered. They need to be concealed. They need not to be viewed in a public way. Isn't it true? The whole purpose of clothing is to conceal to provide the appropriate means of the human body necessary for the concealing or otherwise provision for the means of the body. I find it interesting at the bottom of that slide, that's exactly the thing which is so often called in question by the clothing that we typically see in the modern world. Now remember, clothing was like this in the ancient world, at least in some way. But yet we still often find clothing manufacturers and those who purchase, and yet we choose that, which is seductively revealing. Well, what does the word even mean? To seductively reveal is to do the very opposite of what the clothing ought to accomplish. Things ought not to be seen. Things are not for public spectacle. And yet, clothing is manufactured in such a way to reveal things to make it possible to use one's mind to see what is there and to appreciate what apparently is only in a modest way or is in, in an inappropriate way covered. As you close that slide with me, think about some of the language that's often used. Clothing that accentuates. Clothing that makes look sexy. Clothing, again, that chooses to seductively reveal. May I offer the thought that we have to be very mindful 
that just because a manufacturer makes it does not mean it's fitting for a person of God to wear it. It may need to be augmented with other pieces of clothing which do a better job covering what the manufacturer didn't. All of that reminds us that the clothing of the ancient world and the clothing of our modern world is such that, as we'll see in the slides to come, there are things that certainly are worthy of our careful, careful reflection because it matters. God cares what you and I wear. So much so that the Word of God on a number of occasions has mentioned it. Let's pause long enough to develop a point that is a critical one in this entire discussion. It's a little four-letter word, lust. The Word of God gives us commandments, and I'm going to invite you to consider as I read Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. In this ancient inspired passage written to the churches of Galatia, the inspired apostle wrote this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Paul, under this passage, makes a presentation. A presentation that affords this distinction. The Spirit wars after the matters that are against the flesh and vice versa. They're against one another. This is not new to any of us. We understand well how that the issues of the flesh, the passions pursuant by it, so often are very much against holiness and godliness and righteousness and things that are pure and clean. That's true of our clothing, my friends. What the world may so often encourage by way of wearing, and the world likely would applaud you for wearing it. Jesus Christ would hang His head in sorrow. That a person supposedly who is His own would make a choice to wear something like that in public. Don't you and I know that there are those today who never seemingly give a second thought to wearing their undergarments in public and suppose that that is sufficient clothing? It isn't. It never was. You and I will never forget that in the Garden of Eden, that's what Adam and Eve were wearing, and God saw fit to make them something different. And they were husband and wife. Even they were not to be wearing that in public. Is it any different today? And yet we have the open, common choice, so often before us, that that is what is worn. It ought not be so. You may notice on that slide that in addition to the passage before us, let's look at two other ones. And one of these, may I point out, speaks a great deal of interest to the particular subject of our discussion today. In 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, the Apostle John, which remember was stationed in the same city, Ephesus, wherein these earlier injunctions by Paul were presented. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Among the listing that John 
presented to us. The first one was the lust of the flesh. May I point out then that that which encourages the lust of the flesh, that which endorses the lust of the flesh, that which in fact puts on a higher elevation, the pursuit of the lust of the flesh, all of that would be included as being condemned here. You and I are not to be those who actively pursue the encouragement connected to the lusts of the flesh. We all understand that there are appetites of this human body. We understand that. There's food that we need to eat, and there's other attributes concerning the behavior of the body. But in regard to the lust of the flesh, Paul said, this is not of God. And he said, it will, of course, pass away in the nature of the matter. That third passage, and after looking at this one, we'll try to pull all of these together. Would you look with me at 1 Thessalonians 4? Near the beginning of that chapter, we encounter these statements. May I begin reading in verse 3? For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication... Let me pause long enough to say none of us in the slightest moment would question this. Fornication is bad. It's wrong. We ought to abstain from it. That's easy. Look at verse 4. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. So in light of wishing to avoid fornication, each person should possess his vessel. What's that? May I offer the thought? That word vessel would appear to be a wonderful Greek reference to a person's body. I possess my body, you possess yours in such a way we do not encourage in ourselves or others fornication. Let's read on to verse 5. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. So people that don't know God may well pursue what's called in verse number 5, lust of concupiscence, passions of the flesh. May they do that by the way they dress. May they do that by the conduct and the appearance they make before others. Why, absolutely. You and I, as those who adore the God of heaven, we possess our vessel. And in so doing, we do not do so in a way to pursue the passions of lust what the King James calls concupiscence. Clearly, our clothing makes a great difference. How do you and I dress in public? How do we appear as others look upon us? Do we do so in a way that encourages lust in them? If so, I've just sinned. Let it be noted, if I dress modestly and appropriately, and they nonetheless allow those thoughts to cross their mind, I have not at least encouraged it. That thought rests with them. But if I've dressed immodestly, inappropriately, in a way unbecoming in the eyes of God, then I have contributed to their thoughts of lust. I've contributed, I've encouraged it, and in so doing, I've become guilty. As you notice near the bottom of that slide, let's define the word just so we're clear about this. As the King James Version and the other translations of the Bible use that word lust, it has a reference to passion in the form of evil cravings. Every time that word's used in the Bible, it's used negatively. 
In other words, it's not a lust for peach cobbler. There wouldn't be anything, I suppose, wrong with that unless you go too far with it. But in terms of this word lust, as it occurs with regard to this lust of the flesh, it's always evil. And surely, in its connection to fornication, there's a reminder in it of the seriousness that relates to it. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, Mortify it. That means put it to death. It ought not be a part of that which is the life of those that would be pleasing unto the God of heaven. Maybe one final thought on that slide would be this. Did you notice in that text? There was a relation to self-control. I can choose what to wear once I get of age. Clearly, parents need to choose pretty carefully when that youngster has not reached age to make sure he or she is dressed modestly. But as adults, you and I need to choose carefully. May we look through our closet and eliminate everything that would not be in the description of what we've learned today so that we can always live in such a way to never encourage lustful thoughts in the mind of others I might use this as an opportunity to say, to say it this way. God made men and women rather different in terms of the way we look at things. Men tend to be much more visually oriented than women. I suppose that's why God directed these statements the way He did. Women dress in modest apparel. Men's eyes can lead to thoughts in their mind which can quickly become what Jesus described in Matthew 5, 28. He that looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus said that. That man that looks on a woman and maybe she's dressed according to the attire of a harlot, in the words of Proverbs 7, verse 10, then she has encouraged that kind of thinking. She has conducted herself in a way that has in fact pursued that line. That certainly means that ladies need to dress modestly, but may I be quick to say, a man does too. Women too certainly have some degree of visual character. So that man that's dressed with far too little clothing, whether he's outside working, whether he's doing something else, he nonetheless could well be a part of encouraging thoughts in her mind that would not be right either. The human body, you see, is not a public spectacle. It is not to be put on display like a museum. As you and I look at some of those thoughts on this next slide, I believe we can use 1 Corinthians 6 to help make sure we understand that. I've selected three verses out of that chapter, which you and I will use merely to summarize some of the thoughts we've noted already. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, would you begin by noting with me verse 13? The closing part of that verse reads as follows, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So this marvelous wonder we call the human body, and we'd have to agree it is incredible, the kinds of things it can do, the accomplishments which it can undergo, and yet it was not made for fornication. Now, that's literally the act, of course, but certainly anything that leads to it or encourages it. The body wasn't made for that. 
may I offer the thought that has some bearing on our clothing, then I shouldn't dress in a way to encourage fornication or thoughts of adultery in the mind of another. That means we need to be careful. And though the world may applaud immodest clothing, and though the world may approve it, those who love the Lord never will. Those who are striving to dress in a way that would please God, our dress will not look like everybody else's in many cases. Look at another verse in that same chapter. This time, verse 18. The two words that begin that verse are these. Flee fornication. Don't run beside it. Don't see how close to it you can get. Don't try to encourage thoughts that relate to it. That surely includes the fact that we ought to dress in a way that is respectable and modest and godly and holy. And the last verse is verse 20. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Question, as you and I leave the house, perhaps each day it would be entirely fitting to ask, does what I wear glorify God? If it doesn't, change. If it doesn't, put on something else. If it doesn't, that's the time to make a choice, a directed change to do something different. Those three verses in that chapter allow me to invite you to notice that I've listed them for you identically in italics on that previous slide and now this one. And the kind of clothing that you and I can often see today on the television, at Walmart, at the other places in which we may well visit. We certainly can be thankful that some places of business have dress codes. Some schools, of course, do as well. And we can be thankful, at least when that's true. Even in those cases, it's not always true that those codes would exactly be consistent with the Word of God either. And so, we in our individual lives, we need to appreciate what the teaching of the Bible is. And may we live in a way to be a great example before everybody that may associate and see us. You may notice on that slide, I've invited you to, in some instances to note the verb that appears in these cases. What others see in the dress that you and I choose. Let's conclude our lesson like this. We've looked at the very practical topic that I entitled Modest Apparel because that's the wording in 1 Timothy 2, verse number 9. The encouragement from the ancient city of Ephesus. Notice that city would no doubt have a lot of influences, not unlike those we face today. That city has in it the very character of the need for modest apparel just like ours does today. And in the three instances we've noted how it does matter what we choose to wear or not wear. Finally, in that connection, oh, how serious lust is. May you and I never conduct ourselves by what we wear in a way to encourage lust in somebody else. We might well be a part of what leads them to eternal doom. And what a tragic thought that is. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 6, flee fornication. The body's not for that. And rather glorify God in your body. Today, it could be in this assembly. 
it may not be an issue connected to what we wear, but some other matter in life, and maybe you've never become a Christian. The Lord died for you. He shed His blood for you to make it possible that you could be saved from sin, but maybe to this point you've never taken advantage of the offering of salvation. Why not today? Believe on the Lord, won't you? Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known that way of life, but maybe over the course of time you've gradually been pulled into the influence of the devil, maybe that's shown itself in a number of ways, including things that were not always right in the way you chose to dress. You can get forgiveness from that, and you can make the necessary changes. That's called repentance. Today, if we could help you in that way, observing that repentance and confession of that sin, we'd pray for you, and the Lord would forgive you. If you need prayers of encouragement and strength, we'd be happy to to do that as well. Brother Larry has chosen this psalm encouragement. If we could help you today in any of these ways, we would wish to invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.